Okay, let's move on to lesson number three, preparing for revival. Now, in our last session, I gave you some incorrect information when I mentioned the name Frank Bartleman. It was not Frank Bartleman. His name was Charles Parham, Charles Fox Parham, who had the Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And James J. Seymour was one of his students. I said Frank Bartleman. Have you ever like put on a, a shoe and it doesn't fit? And I was saying it was Bartleman. It was not Bartleman. It was, it was Charles Fox Parham. That was the Ku Klux Klan sympathizer that rejected the very revival that he had sought God for for all those years because it did not look like what he thought it would look like. In our third lesson, we're moving on now to preparing for revival. Now, we must understand that revival is sovereign. People cannot create revival. People cannot bring revival. People cannot cause a revival to take place on demand. I wish we could, but we can't. Revival is always a sovereign move of the Holy Spirit. Man must depend upon God to send it. But God, on the other hand, depends upon man to cooperate with it. Man needs God. God needs man. But when man and God come together for God's purposes... Great, great explosions of blessings become a reality. There has never been a great revival or a great awakening that God did not lay the groundwork for it spiritually in weeks or months or years or in some cases even decades before it actually was birthed. The Great Awakening that came to America in the 1740s actually began in Massachusetts with Jonathan Edwards when 300 people got saved. Now 50,000 got saved in the Great Awakening, but the 300 that got saved two years prior was a forerunner of what God was going to do. Amazingly as it may seem to some, it's almost as though revival's they begin suddenly of a sort, but there are many little, almost like tremors before a big earthquake comes that signal something greater that is coming that come immediately in the days or weeks before a big earthquake takes place that scientists understand are indicative of something bigger that is coming in the future. And that seems to be the pattern with revival, that even though they do break out and do great things, there are always tremors of revival that God uses to enlist the help and support of people, that people would do their part in terms of prayer and intercession and faith and expectancy and these kinds of things, which God then takes that, that people give to Him and molds it. Two of the people that God used in such a profound way to bring forth the Hebrides revival, I keep referring to that, of 1948, were two elderly sisters. They were both homebound. 
One was so filled with arthritis she couldn't get out and move around, and the other one was totally blind, and yet it was the blind one that God gave the vision of the revival to. And they prayed and prayed and prayed, and these things are in your book, and you can go and read about them in greater depth. But it was though God used two elderly women that couldn't get out of the house and had nothing else to do but eat and sleep and pray to be instruments that he used in laying the foundation. And so people cannot produce a revival. People cannot force a revival to come. But they can cooperate with the Holy Spirit in laying the groundwork and plowing the fallow ground and making the conditions right in order that in the sovereignty of God, in the times and purposes of God, that God can come and do what God wants to do in the way that He wants to do it. Now God is the one that sends the revival, but the church must cooperate with that. The church must yield to that. I grew up in a little town called Fairhope, Alabama. Fairhope was on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay. It's down at the very, very bottom of Alabama, down next to the Gulf. The eastern shore of Mobile Bay is known for a phenomenon that takes place every year, usually in July, August, September, sometimes even into October. There's only one other place on the planet that anything similar and it's a little island off the coast of Japan that scientists know of anything even remotely similar to this occurrence. It's called a jubilee. Jubilees happen at the end of summer, usually on a full moon, usually in times of rain and storms. A lot of times a tropical storm in the Gulf will contribute to it. Scientists understand what happens. They don't, to this day, understand why it happens. But there are two rivers that flow into the north end of Mobile Bay, the Alabama River and the Tom Bigby River, that come down from Mississippi, Alabama, and flow into the north end of the bay. And you've got the salt water from the Gulf of Mexico that comes up from the south. And it is the mixing of the fresh river water from the rivers and the salt water from the Gulf in this large bay that causes an amazing phenomenon to happen. It always happens at night, usually after midnight. It is always over precisely at the breaking of day. It happens usually around a falling barometer. More often than not, an east wind is involved in it. But what happens in this big bay that's probably close to 20 miles long and maybe four or five miles across, that bay begins to change in the dark of night. And large pools of highly oxygenated water begin to form. Some can be an acre or more. Some can be a mile long and a half a mile wide. But it's pools of oxygen-rich water. And what happens is when these pools begin to form, all the fish in the bay migrate into those pools because, I mean, they're just getting high on this oxygen-rich water. 
And these pools drift in that bay at night by the winds and by the tides. And when one of these pools drifts up on the shore of the eastern shore of Mobile Bay, it becomes an all-you-can-eat seafood buffet. I remember as a child going with my daddy in the middle of the night down to the water and wading out into the water, knee-deep water with big old lights. People carry big galvanized tubs with them and put an inner tube out of a tire around the outside of it, blow it up so the tub will float and tie a rope to it and wade in that dark water, in the knee-deep water with these big lights. And the thing is just full of fish. I mean, I've seen shrimp so thick you could shovel them out with a snow shovel. I mean, just thick. I mean, I can remember as a little boy getting down in the water and catching flounder with my bare hands. Now, that's not a fish story. You know, I'd lose 20 or 30 trying to catch one. Trout, redfish, flounder, shrimp, stingrays, eels, everything that lived in that bay would gravitate into these pools of oxygen-rich water. And when the tides and the winds caused one of those to drift up on the shore, it wasn't a matter of how much could you catch, it was a matter of how much could you carry. And it was called a jubilee. And it was because of all of these environmental conditions coming together. Now you could go down to the bay and fish with a rod and a reel anytime you wanted and catch a fish one at a time. But when all of these conditions came together in one place at one time and all of this converged and a jubilee occurred, it was not go to the bay with a rod and a reel and a hook and a cork and a little piece of shrimp to go fishing. It was taking tubs and buckets and nets and gigs and anything, bare hands, and it was all there as much as you wanted. Those jubilees, by the way, still go on today after all these many years. The earliest records go back to the Native Americans that lived way back hundreds of years ago. They're references in history. They understand what happens. They just don't understand why. It's the salinity of the water and just a thousand ingredients. But when all those ingredients are right, a jubilee occurs. My dear brothers and sisters, I'm convinced tonight that God is bringing the conditions together for a great jubilee of His glory. A great end time, last days, jubilee of the heavenly realms invading the earthly realms to bring in a harvest of souls like no other generation has ever seen. A harvest of souls, not shrimp and trout and flounder and crabs, but a harvest of souls because of a revelation of God's glory. And so God lays the foundation and prepares us for revival. And some of those environmental conditions that must come together for the revival that God wants to send to actually come. The first one is intercessory prayer. Before every great worldwide awakening, there has been seasons of intercession, of people that God had spoken to, people that God had revealed Himself to and had showed Himself to, 
and had caused them to understand that they were to pray for something that they had not yet seen. It's like what happened to me in 1990, how we prayed and fasted for three years for something that we didn't even know what it was, but knew that God wanted to do something. And it seems to be the pattern in every great awakening that God will have intercessors, that God will have people, that He will raise up. And interestingly enough, it doesn't have to be large numbers, but God has always had people that prayed before every revival that He's ever sent. There were intercessors that sensed in the Spirit that God was up to something and began to cry out to heaven like Isaiah did. Oh God, that you would rend the heaven and that you would come down, that nations might shake at your presence. One of the prerequisites of every great revival is intercession. Without it, nothing happens. One of the things that John Wesley said that I read years ago, I never forgot it, was that God seldom, if ever, does anything until somebody asks Him. God seldom, if ever, does anything until someone asks Him. And one of the things I know that in this church that you do is you pray. And you're crying out for God, for God to move in this city, for God to move in this county, for God to move in this region of your state and in this region of America. And as I have gone back and forth and up and down all across America, from Florida all the way to Alaska, the thing that amazes me is everywhere I go, I find pockets of people that are crying out to God to come and visit this nation again. People that are praying, people that are fasting, people that many of whom they've never read the books They've never read the accounts of great revivals of the past, except they know somewhere deep within the recesses of their heart that God wants to do something that they've never seen, that they've never been a part of, that will shake a nation and will turn a nation. And they are praying. I think the reason that I'm so passionate is I know it's coming because I see the depth of the stirring and brooding of the Holy Spirit in this nation and in others for God to send great awakenings again. We've seen the evidence of that in Scandinavia and in Norway, the hunger and the thirst in Scandinavia of people that are longing to see God come and visit Scandinavia. I've been to England 26 times in the last seven years. We keep going back and forth to England because in England there's a remnant of people there that know down deep in their hearts that God wants to visit England once more. We've seen it in Germany. We know of its existence in France. We know of people all across Europe, people in South America, people in Asia that are crying out to God, God, come and visit us once more. That's not something that people would do naturally, but it is rather the reaction of people that will yield to the wooing and the moving and the stirring of the Holy Spirit that's drawing them to do that. God is stirring in the nations. God is stirring in the earth, stirring the hearts of people to pray. What are the environmental conditions of the Holy Spirit that always must be present, just like the salinity of the water and 
the tides and the rain and the barometer and the winds and all of these other factors that come together to produce a jubilee in Mobile Bay. One of the environmental conditions that must be present before great revival comes is the presence of deep intercession. And it's in the earth, in our generation, of people that have prayed and have prayed and have prayed and have never been able to shake it off. They've never been able to get over it. And they're reacting to the stirring of the Holy Spirit that is giving birth to something wonderful. The second environmental condition, I believe, is the sense of anticipation, of people that just sense it. How many know what it's like? You just feel like it's going to rain before it ever rains. There's just that feeling in the air, the heaviness in the air, the humidity, the heat, just that steaminess, that it just has that feel to it. That before you ever hear the thunder, before we ever see the lightning, before the first dark cloud begins to form and the first raindrop begins to fall, it's like there's just something in the air. It's that sense of anticipation is one of those environmental conditions in the earth that the Holy Spirit gives rise to in advance. The third one is faith and expectancy. And I'll let you read it on your own. We'll not take the time to do it in this session. But go over to Acts chapter 10 and read the story of Cornelius and how that he loved God and he prayed and he gave alms to the people and how the angel came and said to send to a tanner by the name of Simon that lived by the sea. For there's a man there by the name of Simon Peter. You go and send for him, and he will come, and he will tell you what you need to do. And you remember the whole story of how that Cornelius, a Roman centurion, sent for Simon Peter. And, but before those that had come to bring him to Cornelius, how God ministered to Peter in the vision. Because until that time, Peter didn't believe that salvation belonged to anybody but the Jews. You remember the story. But the point that we're getting to here is when God brought all these things together and Peter finally went to the house of Cornelius, Cornelius was there. He was at home. His family, his friends, everyone was there waiting for Peter to arrive because they believed that when Peter came, we don't know Peter. We don't know what Peter's going to say. We don't know what Peter's going to do. We don't know what Peter's going to bring, but we know that when Peter gets here, something's going to happen. And we're going to be here, and we're looking forward to it. We've canceled all the other stuff. We've put off and delayed the other things. We're not going to try to work Simon Peter's visit into our already busy calendar. We're going to cancel the calendar because God has something to bring to us. And when Peter came, Cornelius like fell before him and was going to worship him. Roman centurions don't bow down to anyone except the emperor in Rome. He was expected that God was going to do something. And that day they were all gathered together and Peter began to preach. And you remember the story. While Peter was still preaching, Peter had not even gotten to the 
final explanation. Peter had not finished his notes. He had not gotten to the end of the teaching. And suddenly, the faith and the anticipation and the expectation of Cornelius and those that were there was at such a degree of intensity, what happened? The heavens opened. And the heavenly realm invaded the earthly realm of Cornelius' house, and suddenly they just had a day of Pentecost. Now the remarkable thing about this account is no one ever got them to the sinner's prayer. They never bowed their heads. They never closed their eyes. They never raised their hands. They never came down front. They never prayed a prayer. They never got involved in the program. They never got discipled. They never read 14 books and listened to 22 hours of tapes before anyone mentioned the Holy Spirit to them. I mean, the heavens broke wide open, and God just filled them all. It was certainly not Peter's faith, because Peter stood there with the others saying, I'm not believing this. These are Gentiles, and now God is going to pour out His Spirit on Gentiles like He did on us the day of Pentecost? Well, who would have thunk it? (laughs) I mean, who would have guessed this? And so Peter had to change his theology, as did the other Jews. And they realized, well, obviously God's not a respecter of people. That God's going to come visit anybody and everybody that's hungry and thirsty. It was the faith and expectancy in the house of Cornelius that the barrier that separated the heavenly realm from the earthly realm, the thing just had to give way even though it wasn't time yet. He hadn't finished. But faith and expectancy and hunger and desperation and thirst will literally, will literally accelerate. I mean, God just can't hold Himself away from people that are that hungry. And I mean, it just broke. And revival came to the house of Cornelius only because of the faith and expectancy. Someone asked Reinhard Bonnke one time, they said, Bonky, why is it that people come to these meetings and all these miracles happen in these crusades that you do in Africa? And his reply was, the reason 600 blind people got healed of blindness last night is 6,000 blind people came to the meeting. I've been personally in Benny Hinn meetings and seen people being healed by the power of God before the meeting ever began. Benny's at the hotel. But because people came in faith and expectancy, they drew on the anointing of God, and God didn't need Benny anyway. In Catherine Kuhlman's meetings, there were people that were healed on the chartered buses on the way to the Catherine Kuhlman meeting. I mean, a hundred miles from Pittsburgh by the power of God. Why? Faith and expectancy. They believed, if I go there, God will heal me. And because of faith and expectancy, my brothers and sisters, it happened. Miracles happened. Faith and expectancy is one of those ingredients in the spirit realm that attracts the lightning of God. You see, some people are praying for revival, but they don't ever expect it to come. There was a story years ago 
out in the heartland of America of a severe drought. The rain had not come for months. The crops were in the field. The farmers were going to lose everything unless it rained. And they declared a day of prayer and fasting and intercession for rain to come in the county. And they closed down the shops and the businesses and the schools and all the farmers came in from the fields and the whole town was coming together to cry out to God for rain to come. And there was a little girl, eight years old, that went to the meeting in the church in that town. And she brought with her an umbrella. And people said, honey, what are you doing with that umbrella? And this little eight-year-old girl said, well, I thought we were coming here to pray for rain, that God would send us rain. And I just thought if we asked God to send the rain, it would rain, and I didn't want to get wet. And suddenly the whole town was touched. And they realized, well, we were just going to come together and fast and beg and plead. and Oh, God, 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 help, 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 send the rain. But it took a little eight-year-old girl that said, yeah, let's go pray, but I'm going to take my umbrella so I won't get wet. And the whole town repented of their unbelief, and they prayed that day believing that the rain would come. And that afternoon about 5 o'clock, the clouds started to build, and the wind began to blow, and it rained for three days. A slow, steady, soaking rain, three days, it rained in that town. They had the biggest crops they'd had in years. And they said it was all because of a little girl brought an umbrella to the prayer meeting. Because suddenly she stirred faith and expectancy in the hearts of others. My brothers and sisters, we need to be praying for revival. But we need to be praying in anticipation. We need to have our revival umbrellas ready. Because just praying for revival without any expectation that it'll ever come. That's just dead revival religion, unless there's an expectation in that. Prophets have a role in revival. There's something about speaking out the Word of God and releasing it spiritually. We've been going back and forth to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania every other month for two and a half years, doing what we call Glory in the City conferences. Going back there next month, I was just there a few weeks ago, Gathering people together from all over Philadelphia and all over that region. Gathering people together to say, God, we're back and we still believe that, God, you're still going to do it. Philadelphia is a rich, rich area of revival. If you get the old history books of revival, you don't find Boston mentioned very often. You don't find New York mentioned very often or Washington or Baltimore. But you do find Philadelphia. It's one of those strategic cities. We just feel led to keep going. I mean, we've been going there every other, every two to three months for the last two and a half years and don't have any plans to stop because we believe it's going to rain in Philadelphia one of these times. We believe it's going to rain. Got a stirring in my heart that it's going to rain. God's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. We keep going because we keep knowing in our knowers that God's up to something wonderful. Fifth is an awareness of the need of revival. Spiritual hunger and desperation. The willingness to constrain the presence of God when it comes. My dear brothers and sisters, if you don't tonight understand 
just how desperately we need revival. We need to pray for you tonight. Let me let you in on a harsh reality. Democrats are not going to fix this. Republicans are not going to fix this. What's wrong with our nation is not going to be fixed. And politicians can trade lies for votes as long as they want to. But politicians cannot fix America. The only thing that's going to fix America is revival. The only thing that's going to fix this nation. The toothpaste is out of the tube. You can't put it back. And we must have an understanding in our hearts that as we're pursuing revival and as we're talking and learning about revival and reading books on revival, we're not doing these things for entertainment. You see, everything that I'm doing in ministry, I have to be honest with you and tell you that I have a very selfish motivation. I do everything I do for my children and my grandchildren. I don't have any grandchildren. But if Jesus doesn't come back, one of these days I will. And the reason that I keep riding the airplanes week after week after week, night after night, day after day, to place after place, even here doing this revival school, is for my children and for your children and for my grandchildren and your grandchildren. And if Jesus doesn't come back, our great-grandchildren. Because I tell you tonight, our beloved America is in big, big trouble. We're hemorrhaging to death right now. I tell you tonight, this nation does not have 25 years left in it. It does not have another 25 years before America doesn't even look like what it looks like tonight without revival. You say, you're just talking about the economy. No, I'm not talking about the economy. Money's just money. I'm talking about morally, families, educationally, spiritually. I was in a city last week, largest church in the city. They had a sanctuary that would seat 3,000 people. They just took the cross off the top of the building. Had a contracting crew come, remove the cross from the top of the building. Take the cross out of the sanctuary because they didn't want to be offensive to people. Last time I checked, it was the preaching of the cross was the gospel. They don't want to offend people. I mean, I read these statistics just recently. Of, I mean, it just blew my mind of the percentage of pastors and Christians, men and women in the American church that are addicted to pornography on the Internet. I was astounded at the percentages. I mean, I don't even want to quote it tonight. I mean, you might just go home and say it's hopeless. But it's not. Culturally, socially, spiritually, at every level, we must have revival. It is our only hope. And when the church comes to that place of desperation, revival will come when the church meets the conditions of Second Chronicles 7, 14. And we're sort of headed for the finish line. God gave to Solomon the recipe to see revival come. Turn over there with me in your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, that's the church, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. My brothers and sisters, the church tonight holds the future of America. 
It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Federal Reserve. It's not health care. It's not GM and Chrysler and Ford and interest rates and alternative energy. It's the church. We literally hold the future of this nation in our hands by what we do. The first sermon I ever preached was in 1977 in a preaching class when I was a student in seminary. 1977, first sermon I ever preached was on 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I would hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. The first sermon I ever preached in a real church service was in a Methodist church outside of Eminence, Kentucky, outside of Louisville, and I preached on 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. First sermon I ever preached when I became a Methodist pastor, my first Sunday in the Methodist church, was, you guessed it, 2 Chronicles 7.14, If my people... I left the Methodist church and moved back to Florida and founded a church. First Sunday, brand new church, 2 Chronicles 7.14, If My People. Pastored that church for seven years. Revival came and God sent us on the road. The first sermon I ever preached 15 years ago, the first place God ever sent us was, that's right, 2 Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. I've preached that scripture 25 different ways a hundred different times because it's part of the very DNA of our ministry. But it was only in November of 2008 that I ever preached the scripture that came right before it. I'd never preached that before. Because the scripture that came right before that scripture was not in agreement with the theology of the American church. And we've quoted 2 Chronicles 7.14 so many times, but most people have never read the scripture that came before it which is actually 14 is only a continuation of the sentence that began in 13. And so in November of 2008 in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I preached for the very first time. 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. Let's read it together. Let's start at verse 12. The Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, I've heard your prayer I've chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And in verse 13, God said to Solomon, and he says to us tonight, When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, 
Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. We will never understand 14 until we understand the full context of 13, where God said, when I shut up the heaven. You see, in the American church, why that would be something God would never do because God is always in a good mood. God is good all the time. God would never do such a thing. That's a negative confession. It's the devil that shuts up the windows of heaven. Well, that's not what verse 13 said. God said, I'll shut it up. God said, command locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among in the land. He said, if my people, the church, my brothers and sisters tonight, where we are this evening is in verse 13. And God wants to take us to verse 14. And when the church becomes the church and we really get it and we understand it and we believe it, that one of the environmental conditions that must be met to bring forth another great awakening is for the church to realize the seriousness of the hour in which we live and be motivated to action. You see, some of us in revival, even in the church, we say, well, we're just waiting on God. The reality is, is God's waiting on us. And I preached it for years that God wanted to send revival in days of peace and blessing and prosperity. That was always God's first choice. But if God cannot send it because of the apathy and indifference of the church in days of peace and prosperity and blessing, God will allow those things to be shaken, which can be shaken, that those things that are eternal might remain. I don't want Al-Qaeda to bring revival. I don't want pestilence. I don't want bird flu and swine flu and pandemics to be the thing that causes the church to awaken. I don't want earthquakes and droughts and shakings and storms. I don't want economies going in the tank and financial ruin to be the thing that causes the church to awaken from its slumber and its sleep. But beloved, it's the desperation. It's the desperation is one of the key ingredients that must be present for great awakenings to come. God wants to do it. He's ready, are we? Amen.